Is religion a bad thing? So as you might imagine, I'm going to be using the word religion quite a few times in this message. So I want to just say a word about the word uh, before we get started. For the past several years, I've tended to think of religion more in its negative connotation than in its positive connotation. Dorman has mentioned in the pastor's meeting, and I think perhaps even from here, that the root meaning of the word religion means to bind. And in fact, that's, that's true. Religion comes from Latin, about two or three different parts of Latin, and it literally means to bind again. In fact, that L-I-G in the middle of religion is where we get the word ligament from the ligaments that bind the bones together. So it literally means to bind. So here's the question for this morning. Does the word religion always refer to something that's negative or bad? Let's look at James 1.26, and we'll see an example of the use of the word in the Bible. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is useless, worthless. So there's an example right out of the Bible where the word religion is used in a negative way. But also notice, James is not broad brush painting all religion in a negative way in this verse. He's just saying that this man's religion, someone he's referring to, maybe either a a hypothetical person or an actual person he's thinking of, but he says, this man's religion is worthless. And this man's religion is worthless because apparently he likes to think of himself as being very religious, and yet his religion does not even help him to control his own mouth. So that's why James said it's worthless religion. That kind of person he's talking about may be someone who goes through the outward motions of religion very faithfully, may do them very well, but uh, it hasn't changed his behavior. And uh, Jesus said three times in the Gospels, I'll just give you three examples, Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 15, 18, and Luke 6, 45, where Jesus says that the mouth speaks out of the heart, out of the heart comes what the mouth will speak. So really what James is saying in that verse in James 1.26 is that this man's religion has not changed his heart. Because if his heart had been changed, his mouth also would have been changed. And if you've been around here very long, it's around here somewhere, we know change doesn't work. But before we decide that the word religion always is referring to something negative, let's look at the very next verse in James chapter 1. Verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained by the world. So we see in this verse that there is such a thing as religion that is pure and undefiled. So I'm simply trying to point out, as we start off this morning, that the English word religion can be used and is used to mean something positive as well as something negative. But the reason we tend to use it in its negative connotation around here 
is because we're trying to reinforce the distinction between man's self-effort, which often falls under the umbrella of religion, versus what God has already given us as a gift. God's never pleased when man tries to achieve or attain something that God has already given as a gift. So that negative sense is the way that I'll be using religion uh, this morning. Now here's some irony for you. Uh, Just out of curiosity, I got on the internet this week and I was just looking up, how do other people use the word religion? Do they see it more positive, more negative? And this one guy uh, had a nice webpage and he had written an article to defend the word and the concept of religion. Now what he did, he pointed out the way atheists or people who just aren't, you know, what we would call church people maybe, he, uh, he said, you know, oftentimes they will say things like, oh, religion's just for people who are afraid to think and they just need a crutch to get through life. Perhaps you've heard something like that. Or you have to leave your brains behind when you become religious. You have to check your brain at the door. So this man was trying to defend the word against attacks like that. But, and he also pointed out that it comes from the Latin, which means to bind. But then here's the irony. He defined religion. He said, religion doesn't stop people from thinking. It does just the opposite. It helps people think of different ways they can pursue God and bind themselves to him. And there's the irony. In his attempt to define religion, He used it in what I think most of us would say is its negative sense. It's something we have to do. We have to be the ones to pursue God. We have to be the ones that once we grab hold of him, we have to hang on. It's all up up to man's effort. And I would say that's actually the negative sense uh, of the word religion. Let me tell you about something I saw several years ago. It had quite an impact on me, and uh, I hadn't thought about it in a while until I was getting ready for this this week, and I thought maybe this, this would apply. There was an interesting program on television about the Vatican in Rome. The program showed the beautiful buildings, took you down in the vaults, the burial vaults, the vaults, vaults where they have ancient writings from hundreds and thousands of years ago. Uh, But it also showed the quarters where the Pope lives and some of the security that surrounds the Pope. And in the midst of this program, uh, they showed some brief historical film clips of some of the Popes, just real short little clips. And one of them, I think perhaps it was uh, John Paul II. Uh, Well, let me just set the scene for you. I'm going to step down here a second. I'll try to stay away from that speaker. The scene was that large area out in front of St. Peter's Basilica where hundreds of thousands, well, I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands, but certainly tens of thousands of people can be. So if you'll let this front pew here represent the security barrier, it just went on and on and on both directions. Thousands of people were on your side of the barrier, pushed up against it. They were waiting to see the Pope. And on this particular occasion, the Pope was not in his Pope-mobile, but he was on foot. So the camera, the perspective of the camera might be like slightly elevated and over from this side and pointing to the people who were right over in here. 
just pressing, pressing uh, the ones up at the front, the diligent ones who got there early. I think they were getting squeezed pretty good. Then the camera went a little further this direction, and you see the Pope. He's up against the barrier. Whoops. He's up against the barrier, reaching out, touching people. They're pressing from three or four people back, trying just to get a touch, just to get a glimpse. And as I watched that, I noticed a couple right over here. The Pope was about like right here. And this man and woman, husband and wife, you could tell they were so excited. So many people had emotion on their faces. They were wiping tears from their eyes just at the prospect of getting that close to someone they admired so much. So I noticed this couple, as the Pope got closer and closer, you could tell they were getting more and more excited. And when he was about here, they were still way over here, but they already were reaching out, reaching out, hoping to get a touch from him. But then I noticed something else. Between the man and the woman was their son. A little boy looked to be about 10 years old. And uh, while the parents were obviously deeply moved with emotion as the Pope came within their reach, their son's eyes stayed on his cell phone as he did like this, as the Pope went past him. As far as I could tell, he never lifted his eyes to look at the man, the Pope, but kept his eyes focused on his cell phone, taking a video. Now, millions of Catholics would have given almost anything to have the privilege of standing where that little boy stood in a position of unbelievable privilege where he could touch the Pope, where their eyes could meet, where perhaps he would even get a blessing. You know, it's not surprising to see the Pope, especially with the child, to stop and give them a blessing. But this kid was just like this the whole time. Here's the point. The boy seemed to be more interested in capturing a well-framed electronic replica of the Pope than in experiencing a face-to-face glance and touch and perhaps even a blessing. Maybe we can understand that at least a little bit. After all, memories fade, but videos are forever, right? (laughs) But in the years since I saw that video, I've wondered about that boy. He's probably a young adult by now. He and his parents have probably had countless opportunities to tell their friends about this encounter they had in Rome. And I've wondered if the little boy notices as his parents tell the story, it's like they're reliving the event and the emotion comes up. I'm just sure that's how it would be. I could imagine the boy's father saying, he looked right at me. The Pope looked right at me as we shook hands. Maybe his mother says, you know, our eyes met. For a brief, dis- for a brief moment, there was no distance between us and he even squeezed my hand. And I wondered if the boy might be thinking, well, now I had to keep some distance. You know, when you're right up against somebody, you, you can't get a good proper video. So there has to be some distance there so people can tell it's the Pope in the video. Who wants to see a video of a white robe <laughs> passing by? So there needed to be some, some distance, right? 
So there was no physical contact, no eye contact, no shared smile. But I'm sure he had a nice video, a trophy, if you will, to remember that visit. That, dear brothers and sisters, is a tiny hint at the difference between religion and relationship. One reason it's only a tiny hint is that the boy's parents, they didn't actually get to really share their hearts with the Pope, have him share his heart with them. They didn't get to really develop a relationship, but it was still something, something that meant a lot to them. Um, You see the point, the parents wanted that point of human contact with the man, whereas the boy wanted documentation to show that he had at least gotten close. When I saw that scene several years ago, I realized that far too often I had been just like that little boy, just like him. What I mean by that is it's so easy for me to get absorbed in the mechanics of Scripture study. I love it. I just love it. And get absorbed into listening what others have to say about him or what other teachers have said about Jesus, that I could become satisfied, I realized, with capturing and maintaining a well-framed theological set of thoughts about Jesus instead of being satisfied just to be in his presence. That's the particular kind of worthless religion that I'm susceptible to. I have to watch that. I had been in the business, really for a long time, of making a trophy called Good Theology. Now, I was really put in my place a couple of years ago when Marilyn and I heard someone say, you know, one thing you're never going to hear when you get to heaven is, congratulations, you achieved perfect theology during your time in earth. I don't think any of us, anyone, will hear that. So if I pursue theology study for the sake of having good theology, that is worthless religion. It needs to be pursued because it brings us closer to Him. That form of religion, by the way, will change your heart. It will make it very prideful. Jesus accused the Jews of that very thing in John 5.39 when he said, you search the scriptures, you think that in them, in the black and white, you're going to find eternal life. But those scriptures point to me, the giver of life, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, they were also out for that trophy, these Jews were. Jesus was saying, you'd rather be experts in what the scriptures say about your Messiah than in actually knowing your Messiah. You see, they were guilty of committing premeditated, first-degree religion in the negative sense of that word. So we've seen the word religion literally means to be bound again. And those religious leaders chose to be bound to a code of conduct and bound to scriptures about, in fact, about the coming Messiah. They very much loved the idea of the Messiah who was to come. Once the Messiah came, they weren't so interested. It was going to upset their apple cart too much. Their trophy was to be highly regarded because they could speak intelligently about the Messiah who was to come. 
in the process, they kept their distance from the real Messiah who had come and who longed to bind himself to them. That's what religion will do to a person. The seed for this message got planted a few weeks ago. I, was, I think it was in pastor's meeting maybe is when I first read this. Uh, but I read the opening sentence out of a book, and when Dorman heard it, he said, okay, John, that's what your next message is going to be about. So here we are today. But here's the sentence. It's really a profound sentence. It's short. Religion, of course, this guy's using it in that negative sense. Religion thrives on two lies, distance and delay. Religion thrives on two lies, distance and delay. The author of that book was saying that religion consists of self-effort to impress God or to impress other people, but that those efforts, our own human efforts, can never satisfy. They'll never be fully satisfying. As a result, it always leaves us with a sense of distance between us and God. And what religion says is, it's up to you to close the gap. And until that happens, this is where the delay comes in, until you close the distance by your behavior, your good behavior, you're not going to get the fruit of that relationship with the Lord. So, again, religion thrives on two lies, distance and delay. You know where the first example of that kind of religion shows up? Genesis 3, in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. And what did they do? They immediately realized they were naked and they went and performed a little religious observance called covering yourself. Out in the world they have a little different way of saying that, but they were covering themselves with fig leaves by their own efforts. But at the same time, you know, if that let me put it this way, if that covering had really done the job, they would have just marched boldly up to Jesus when he came in the cool of the day. When he called to them, they said, here we are. They knew there was still something wrong, something deeper than just the external had gone wrong that could not be covered by fig leaves. So they were afraid. They hid themselves. You know the rest of that story. In that instance, they wanted distance between themselves and God. They would have been just fine if he had not showed up that day. You know, give us some more time here to figure out what we need to do. Uh, There's another example, though, of this kind of religion in the Bible. In the second book of the Bible, chapter 19 of Exodus, we read about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. He's brought with him the words, the commandments that God had given to the people. And in Exodus 19.8, we see what they said about this. All the people answered together and they said, Oh, well, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sure, we can do that, no problem. One chapter later, chapter 20, verse 21, So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. In that In the amount of time that passed between chapter 19 and chapter 20, they had decided, uh, we're not doing too well meeting all these requirements that we promised God we would do. They sensed a distance spiritually, and so they maintained a physical distance because they were afraid. Distance and delay, two lies that religion thrives on. 
And from the first two books of the Bible, we already see two examples of many, many others in Scripture of people maintaining distance because they thought it was up to them to meet his standard of perfection. Well, if it's true that delay and distance are two lies that religion uses, maybe we can turn the tables. Let's use that information about distance and delay as religion detectors. Let's try it out. When you read a Christian book or you hear a sermon or a Christian teaching, and especially when you listen to Christian music on the radio, now that you have your antenna up, begin to notice, do, do any of those books, teachings, songs give you a sense that there's a distance that needs to be closed between you and God? I think you'll be surprised how often it happens. By distance, I mean there's just something you have to achieve in order to get more of God. Or there's a standard of behavior you must meet before God will be pleased with you. That's a level of holiness you have to attain. In other words, it's up to you to close that distance. Uh, Dorman sometimes quotes a line or two from that song, I'll Fly Away. Yeah. One glad morning when this life is over. Now, we all know when this life that in this physical body, when it's over, it's going to be great. It'll be heaven without all the baggage that we're carrying around. So I'm, I'm not trying to knock that at all. But the kicker line from the song is just a few more weary days and then. So we just have to slog along trying to do the best we can. That's religion and it's probably worst or purest form. I don't know how to say it. We don't deny trials and tribulations. We have trials and tribulations, but when we're living in an awareness of Christ living through us, then we shouldn't be saying just a few more weary days. We should be living in victory in the here and now. No delay for the victory even in the midst of the trials. Let's look at some other examples. Suppose you're listening to or watching a Christian talk show, radio, television. The guest on the program says something like, does it ever seem to you that your prayers just don't get past the ceiling? Well, if you'll read my book and listen to my CDs, I'll give you all the steps you need so that you can get your prayers past the ceiling to God. Okay, we've got newly installed distance and delay detectors in us. Are anyone's lights flashing with that statement? <laughs> yeah, a few of you. That is religion in the negative sense. For one thing, the question incorrectly implies that you and God are on two sides of the ceiling, for Pete's sake. Of the ceiling. That should shut, set off our distance alert right there because Christ is in you the hope of glory. Do you know, you're not only on the same side of the ceiling as Jesus, you're both on the same side of the clothes you're wearing. In fact, you're both on the same side of the skin you're wearing. He is within you. So what if your prayers don't go past the ceiling? That's not where he is. He's in you. Whether God is hearing our prayers or not, and he is, 
But it's not determined by our feelings. And it's not determined by our behavior. Behavior. Now, someone might say, well, I keep having these, these bad thoughts about someone. They're really bad. And there's no point in me trying to pray when I've just had one of those thoughts. Well, I would say that's exactly the time you need to pray. But anyway, that's how religion talks to us. Uh, can you find a scripture where it says God will not hear the prayers of his people? Well, actually, yeah. There is. And you know where to find it. It's in the left part of your Bible. In the Old Covenant, before Christ's Holy Spirit indwelled his people, when the presence of God was physically present in a temple off in Jerusalem, that's a time when God would say, because of what you're doing, I'm not going to hear your prayers. That is not a new covenant concept. Thank the Lord it's not a new covenant concept. Just trust what he says in his word. He hears your prayers. If you're struggling with a particular sin, tell him about it. Admit to him you can't stop. It's not as though he doesn't realize that. There's no surprise there. I think when we finally say, God, I've told you a thousand times that I'm never going to do that sin again. And every time I say it, right after I say it, it seems like, I think there's a connection there. I do it again. He said, I'm tired of apologizing for it. I'm tired of trying. I give up. Would you please help me with this? And I think all of heaven goes, finally, finally, they gave up. And God will begin to work in you to remove that sin from you. It may take a while, but here's the good news. In the meantime, he's not put off by your sin. He's not put off by it. Trust him in it. Let him take care of it. That's not religion. That's called Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's called, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this fleshly body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and still loves me and gave himself for me. Here's another example. This past week, I briefly examined a book off the shelf that promised to teach believers how to be strong in the spirit realm. Well, we all want that, don't we? We want to be strong in the spirit realm. In the table of contents, there was a chapter. The title said that if you want to be strong in the spirit, then you must first crucify your flesh. Any lights flashing, distance, delay. Both those lights should be flashing intensely. The Word of God says, you have been crucified. You were crucified with Christ, past tense. Romans 6, Galatians 2.20. Now, there might be some very helpful things in that book. I, you know, with, with any Christian book, we need to be able to eat the meat that's there, spit out the bones. But it's helpful to recognize the bones so they don't choke us. <clears throat> that author would have you believe that there's a distance between you and spiritual power. Well, guess what? Spiritual power is a person, not a thing. Yes. Jesus is spiritual power. But I'm sure the author would go on to say that since there's distance between you and spiritual power, 
then there's going to be a delay in you acquiring spiritual power because you're the one who has to close that gap, and that's what this chapter is about, telling you how to do that, the steps you need to take. The delay allegedly will last until you get your act together and get your flesh crucified. Distance and delay. Any spiritual power we ever have is not really us. It's Christ in us. Now here's one. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Any red lights flashing? That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. You are right now the righteousness of God in Christ. No lights, just rest in peace. Some evangelism books would have us believe that when we die, we'll be met at the gates of heaven by Peter or an angel or maybe even Jesus himself, depending on who's telling the story. And once you're there, according to those authors, you will be asked this question, why should I let you into heaven? Well, I don't know about you, but both my lights are flashing. I, I don't like to use the word hate, but I hate that question. I've, I've seen it messing people up. What's the problem with the question? It implies that even after you die and you're standing at the gates of heaven, there's still distance between you and God. You're on one side of the gates. He's on the other side. Someone there's there acting as the gatekeeper to protect God from you until they know that all is well. And um, we're sorry. There will be a slight delay until you have adequately demonstrated that you have the proper paperwork and credentials to be allowed in. The truth is, from Scripture, your spirit, the real you, is already in heaven right now. You might say, well, I don't feel like I'm seated in heaven. Well, that's the problem with feelings. They're not very accurate guideposts, especially when we're dealing with spiritual things. Feelings are in the soul, which is part of our flesh, and they can't be trusted. We have to go by what God's Word says, not our feelings. And Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we were, past tense, raised with Christ, that we are now, present tense, seated with Him in heavenly places. So you're already in heaven when... Our last day on earth in this body happens. We just drop off this body and we're right where we've been just without all the baggage that this body blinds us, uh, keeps us from seeing the spiritual reality. Just a couple more examples and I'll finish. So many people will try to tell us that in order to be successful at helping people with uh, achieve freedom from, let's say, demonic oppression, somebody needs deliverance, or they have some other deep spiritual problem, before you can help them, you need to fast and pray, not for a day or two, but for an extended period. The first time Marilyn and I ever participated in a, a deliverance session, there was a, an elderly gentleman assisting. Actually, he was kind of in charge. And he said, everybody needs to fast and pray before we do this or, or it won't work. Now, I'm not going to say, not saying, and I will not say a word against fasting and extended times of prayer, per se. But I am saying that if you're doing those things religiously, 
And by that, I mean if you're doing them to put God in a position where he owes you something, then you've fallen into a religious trap. In fact, you might be sabotaging the very benefit you're trying to help someone achieve. If God puts it on your heart to fast and pray for extended periods, by all means, be obedient and do it. But let it be him that's putting it on your heart. And do it with the attitude of, man, I'm enjoying this time of intimacy with him. This is giving me some more time uh, to be with him. And not because you're earning a trophy that will force God to give you something. If we do such things such as extended fasting and prayer because someone else says that's how it worked for them, what we're following there is a formula, a dead doctrine, and not following Jesus. In closing, there's one final example that I cannot leave out. It goes like this. Now that I have my certificate showing that I've been trained in the use of distance and delay to detect religion, it's my job to examine everything that anyone says or does so I can point out their mistakes. The light shouldn't only be flashing, sirens ought to be going off. That is not only the voice of the religion, that's the voice of a religious spirit where we try to pick apart other people because of things maybe we've gotten kind of good at, but they're not so good at. So the point of these examples is to remind each of us to focus on relationship, intimacy with the Lord. The examples are simply an early warning system to help us identify something that's trying to come in and interfere with our own personal walk with the Lord before it, before it gets too bad. So I'd say the worst religious trap of all is to try to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. I have felt the pain of that from the receiving end, and I'm sorry to say I have felt the pain from the giving end as well. A person can be caught up in deep religious bondage and still be loving the Lord and having wonderful times with the Lord. So as a rule of thumb, it's better to let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's job in each person. He knows the right way and the right time to bring correction. Let's pray. Our Father, you're so good to us. You're so gentle in the way you bring uh, correction in our lives and show us things that uh, are interfering with our ability to have a meaningful and, and uh, life-enhancing relationship with you. We know you're there. We thank you that you're there within us. May we not forget it. And as the veils of, the relig- of religion uh, try to come in and blind our eyes, Lord, help us be sensitive to that, to tell it to go, that we may once again turn toward you and reap the full benefit of this wonderful relationship you've given us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.